Hello and welcome back to Deconstructing the Bible. My name is Jason Steffenhagen. I am the Associate Minister at The Well, a United Methodist Church in Rosemont, Minnesota. Now, if you are driving a car, I would suggest pulling over. If you're doing the dishes, put down whatever is made of glass that you may be washing at the moment. If you're walking, make sure that you are on the side of the road or a sidewalk because I don't want you to get hit by a car with how exciting this news is. Today, we are talking about, hold on, identity development theory. Ooh, I can hear it now. The crowd is going crazy. There is excitement buzzing in the seats. Everyone has leapt up off their chair and they are clapping because there is nothing more fascinating and interesting than identity development theory. Now, you may be wondering, what in the world is he so excited about? Well, I'll tell you what I'm excited about. I love identity development theory. I especially love identity development theory as constructed by James Marcia. Now, last week we talked about faith development theory, a guy by the name of James Fowler in Stages of Faith. Well, identity development theory is kind of similar because as we hold our faith shaping who we are as followers of Christ, people that engage the Bible as a book that helps us understand what it means to be human in relationship to God, ourselves, others, and all of creation, we can and we should recognize that how we develop our identity can impact our faith and impact the way we read the Bible. So why are we studying identity development theory? Very similar to the reason that we are looking at faith development theory, because if we understand how we develop, then we can understand how at different places in different stages and different times in our life, we engage the Bible a little differently. So let's dive in. James Marcia created this model of identity development. Now, it's not a stages model the same way that Fowler had stages as if you're going up a ladder or as if you're going up a staircase. Instead, this is kind of like quadrants. So there's a there's an x-axis and a y-axis. It's almost like we're doing math for a minute. So if you imagine on the up and down, the y-axis, we have commitment. On the x-axis, which goes across, we have what James Marcia called crisis. So we have commitment and we have crisis. Now, for commitment, let me just give you some ideas of what we're talking about. We're talking about how committed are you? How solidified are you? How strongly do you hold to your beliefs, to your values, to the things that help you understand your place in the world? So it could be how committed, how solidified are you in your faith or in the Bible? right? And so it's the more solid you are, the higher up on the axis you go. Now, when it comes to crisis, the, the x-axis, the one that goes across, we're, we're not just talking about crisis as in panic, crisis as in there's a tornado, crisis as, you know, we're going to the hospital and we're rushed there to go see someone. We're talking about this idea of disequilibrium. We're talking about deconstruction. We're talking about moments where we're questioning, we're doubting, we're wrestling, where there's something that has caused us a place of uncomfortability. So when you hear the word crisis, don't in instantly think panic-stricken, which might trigger up in you, but think like uncomfortability, that there's a sense of disequilibrium, that I'm, I'm a little off kilter. I got my brain churning in a way that it hasn't in a while. So I, I'm questioning, I'm wrestling, I'm doubting. Okay, so we have commitment on one axis going up and down, and we have crisis going across um, left to right. 
when commitment is low and the crisis is low, that is quadrant number one, which is what James Marcia called diffusion. The word is diffusion. And, and kind of simply put, you're not really highly committed. You don't have a lot of things forcing you into disequilibrium or wrestling or questioning or doubting or struggling. And so you kind of just find yourself going with the flow. You I mean, you could almost call this quadrant going with the flow. You're not overly zealous for something. You're not out there evangelizing all the time. You're not trying to convert people. You're not trying to convince everyone that you're right. You're just kind of like, throwing your shoulders up and your hands up and saying, hey, I'm cool. I'm I'm good with it. Whatever, whatever, whatever. And so you're kind of just going through it. And there's nothing that's causing you anxiety or stress. There's not a lot going on that is causing you that disequilibrium or needing to deconstruct things. But instead, you're just kind of enjoying the ride, kind of waiting for maybe that spark. You're waiting for that that light bulb to go off and that commitment to suddenly go go sky higher, or maybe life's going to happen and it's going to get really hard, in, you know, down the road. And, and when that happens, it's going to, it's going to move you away from that quadrant. So the first quadrant is the one of diffusion where you're just kind of along for the ride and you're just kind of going through life, which is great. But what happens when your commitment level, as we talked about, goes up? and you suddenly become highly committed, you're excited, you're passionate, you're zealous, you want to tell other people what you believe because your values are solidified, and you just want to share with others where you're at, you just want to dive in deeper to what you believe, that's a great place to be. And what if you are combining that high level of commitment, but with a low level of crisis? So there's not a lot that's forcing you out of your comfort zone. There's not a lot pushing against you. There's not a lot that's causing some disequilibrium or or forcing you to deconstruct things. You're just kind of passionate and you're excited and you're engaged and you're committed and your values are strong. Well, James Marcia calls that place foreclosure. And, and foreclosure is not a bad place. Foreclosure is a very passionate place, as we were talking about. Foreclosure can be a place where we see some of the best work of the church. It's people who know who they are, know what they believe, are confident in that, are excited to tell others about it, or they're excited to live out of that belief. So there's a strong sense of belief, a strong sense of who they are, because they've solidified their commitment, right? Their commitment is high, but there's not a lot pushing against it. And that's okay, right? So foreclosure is this place where we have a high level of commitment, a low level of crisis, and we can see people that are very passionate about their beliefs. Now, I will say that sometimes when we are very, very committed and we have a low level of crisis or disequilibrium, Sometimes that foreclosure could be a little bit of a negative thing because sometimes we start to see a little bit of arrogance creep in and we start to see that my way is the only way or my, it's my way or the highway. And, you know, if you don't agree with me, then you're wrong. And that's where we can get a little bit judgmental. We can get a little bit in and out, us versus them, right versus wrong. We can get really dualistic in this place of foreclosure because... We are very committed and we don't have a lot that's pushing us to think critically or pushing us outside of our comfort zone. So what happens though when it's the opposite of that? What happens when your commitment level is low, but your crisis level is high? This is when you have a lot going on in life that is causing you to ask questions, you're wrestling, you're in disequilibrium, 
Uh, sometimes it could be triggered by an event. It could be triggered by an illness. And suddenly you are asking all sorts of questions. You're wrestling with all sorts of situations. Maybe your theology is just completely in flux. You don't know what to believe anymore. You don't know which way is up, which way is down. And your commitment to what you always thought to be true, now you're kind of wavering. You kind of don't know. And so you, your commitment level goes down your your zealousness for your beliefs or your zealousness for what you your your values is now wavering a little bit so that commitment goes down but the crisis or the disequilibrium goes up now marcia calls this place moratorium moratorium and the reason why it's called moratorium is cuz it can feel very very lonely people can feel very alone when they're in moratorium because they feel like they're the only one maybe wrestling with these questions, the only one that feels like the world is flipped upside down. They're the only one that's that's asking the questions they're asking or doubting the things they're doubting. And so it can feel very, very alone. I remember that when I was just out of college, I picked up a few books along, you know, along the way and started reading a lot and was encouraged to do so by a mentor. And the more I read and the more I engaged, the more I dove in, Man, it it forced me into questions and some crisis of my faith that I was really uncomfortable with. And for a while, it felt very lonely to do so. Now, thankfully, I had my wife, I had a mentor, I had parents that I could reach out to and have dialogue with. So when you're in moratorium, it's really important that you find people that you can wrestle alongside or that are willing to wrestle One of the things that when you're in moratorium where you've got a high level of crisis, disequilibrium, where things seem a little off or you just have a lot that's causing you to think critically and you're starting to question everything and you don't know if your values and if you don't know if your beliefs are going to hold up, you really need to have people along for the journey. And But what you don't want is people that just give you a really quick answer. You don't need people in your life who just want to excuse it away and because what that does is it makes you feel even more alone because you're not honoring the questions that you're asking. You're not honoring the tension that you're experiencing or disequilibrium that you find yourself in. And so if you are a mentor, if you're a pastor, if you're someone who has kids and you notice that they're asking a lot of questions and you can even see the anxiety and the stress behind those questions, or maybe your family is going through a tough time where someone is sick and it's forcing a lot of questions to come out or if you have a loved one who has a friend that you know has maybe gotten addicted to drugs and that's forced a lot of questioning and a lot of you know disequilibrium about who they are and where they are in life and what's going on the last thing we want to do is just try to explain it away talk about no no big deal no problem here just say this prayer just read this verse everything's going to work out the problem with those simple answers is it doesn't honor the space that that person is in, that, that that quadrant of life, that season of life that they find themselves in. Because in that moment, their identity is being rocked a little bit. And what they don't need is to be told that they don't need to be there because what they really need to do is they need to move through that. And it might take a long time. It might take time to process and to think, and it might take time to 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 wrestle things out and to question things. And so moratorium can feel very alone, but the goal is to find people that can meet you in that space, normalize it for you, and then help you navigate the complexity of your questions, the complexity 
of your hard experiences, the complexity of the crisis. You know, I think that today a lot of teenagers are growing up in moratorium. And the reason is simple. The influence of the church has gone down. We are less churched than we ever were, but the connection to the world, the connection to the tragedies of the world, the connection to people's stories that are different from ours are sky high. I mean, we have computers in our pockets that can get us anywhere in the world in a matter of seconds. And therefore, we can be exposed to the worst, the evilest, the most challenging, the most difficult that the world has to offer. We can see everything. We can empathize with so much of what's going on out there. And when we do that, it sometimes puts us in that place of crisis. It can put us in that place of disequilibrium. And if you don't have the solidness of faith, or if you don't have a a, a deep sense of commitment to your beliefs or your values, you suddenly find yourself feeling very alone. And, And the interesting thing is that there's a lot of kids who are alone out there. They feel very isolated and alone. They have that internal crisis of who they are. They don't know who they are. They don't know what they think. And they're wrestling with it. And they feel like they're the only one doing so. And so they find themselves in this very isolated place. And they need people around them who can listen and help them process. Students that I worked with five, ten years ago did not come to college with that in mind. Students that I worked with five, 10 years ago were coming to us from a place of foreclosure because things were different generationally. We went from, you know, the millennials to the Gen Zers and the millennials, yeah, they grew up with phones and they grew up with the internet, but it wasn't that the church still had a very strong place in society. And as that has lessened, we see more kids going to schools, going off to college, experiencing high school in moratorium as opposed to foreclosure. But what happens when commitment and crisis are both high? What happens when you have a strong sense of commitment and and you have a high level of crisis in your life? Marcia actually calls this identity achievement. It might actually be a place where you find yourself operating in a really dynamic way. And here's why. Because you have both things working in a way for you. You have a high level of commitment to what you believe, who you are, a high level of commitment to your values, to, to, to the, the, what, what gives you um, stability in life. But you also are recognizing that there's complexity. You also recognize that there's ambiguity in the world, that there's paradox and mystery, that there's disequilibrium, that there's pain around you, that you recognize that this isn't always all going to seemingly add up right away. And so that pain that you experience or that disequilibrium that you experience is coupled with the high level of commitment. And so they kind of come together, and I like to call this the place of ownership, because you're forced to wrestle, but you're wrestling from a place of of solid ground. You're wrestling from a place of stability, not wrestling or questioning or experiencing disequilibrium without a sense of solid ground. You're actually doing it from a place of commitment to your values and to what you believe. And so when we have these two things come together, we have ownership or identity achievement. Now, some of you may be wondering, like, well, it sounds like identity achievement is the healthy place to live, but that means I 
need to live with the high level of crisis. And that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me because why would I want crisis in my life? Well, that's where I would say the word crisis, again, how we define it matters, right? So when we are talking about it as a way of questioning, when we talk about crisis as a way of recognizing the pains of the world, wrestling with ideas, being open to new things, that can be really, really healthy. So I love the word curiosity. When our curiosity is high and our commitment is high, we are in a place of health because we're living dynamically, we're living authentically, and we are going for it. And I really, really love that idea of curiosity and commitment driving who we are as a person, who we are as a follower of Christ, and how we engage the Bible. So let's talk about the Bible for a brief minute because this is deconstructing the Bible after all. So you can tell where the deconstructing part comes in. We've been talking about disequilibrium and crisis and pain this whole time. But what about the Bible? Well, the Bible plays an interesting role at each of these stages or each of these different spaces that we can find ourselves in, these modalities. So in the first one, diffusion, where you're just kind of along for the ride, the Bible might just be some interesting stories, but it's maybe not making a significant impact on you. When you're in foreclosure, oh man, the Bible is coming alive and the lens through which you're reading it, the, the, the theology that you have is popping off the page. You cannot get enough of it. You just want to read it. You want to engage it. It is an exciting, dynamic book. The thing is, is that you're often only reading it with one idea in mind. We talked about this last time when we were talking about James Fowler and the need to put on different lenses when we read scripture. Sometimes we read it with one lens and that shapes how we read the Bible. And that's what foreclosure can do is that we might get really passionate about the Bible, but we aren't reading it dynamically. We're kind of reading it with this one idea or this one theology through which we're engaging God's word. Now, when you get into moratorium, there's a likelihood that you may put the Bible down for a while because your commitment is low, but the crisis and the disequilibrium is high. So maybe we've put the Bible aside for a little bit. Maybe we haven't engaged it. Maybe it's too complex or maybe it's too, it feels like it doesn't connect with us the way that it used to. And so we don't know how to engage the Bible when we're in a place of moratorium. It feels like we just can't go there because it's not as helpful as it once was. Maybe the Bible is the thing that caused some of the curiosity or the disequilibrium or the confusion. Maybe the Bible and its stories of of judgment and pain, or maybe it's stories of love and justice and it's stories of mercy and forgiveness have thrown you through a loop. Maybe you've read the parable of the prodigal son about how the father is just waiting for the son to come home and offers absolutely no punishment, but just welcomes the son home and embraces him, even though the son has squandered the inheritance. And what does the father even say to the older brother? Everything I have is yours. So there's this sense of belonging and tenderness. There's this sense of being a part of the dynamic kingdom of God that we see through the story of the prodigal son. And maybe that kind of acceptance and belonging is almost uncomfortable. Maybe being loved or the idea of being loved like that is just making it hard. So maybe the Bible is actually the thing that puts us in a place of curiosity. And that can be a really beautiful thing. And then in identity achievement, that place where we have a high level of curiosity and a high level of commitment, I believe that is the space where the Bible, when it's engaged in this dynamic way, this way of 
curiosity, this way of questioning, this way of wrestling with the text like we talked about with Stephanie Spencer, I think that's when the Bible is at its best. Because I think the Bible is complex. I think it has so much to teach us, but I also think it forces us to wrestle. It forces us to ask questions about where am I finding myself in these stories? Who am I in this story? Am I the maybe the judgmental Pharisee or am I the kind, you know, hearted Samaritan who's helping the person along the side of the road? Like, who am I in these stories? How do I navigate these parables? How do I navigate these truths? The Bible can actually be this place where we go to wrestle. We go to be curious. We go to engage a faith that we hold to and that we believe in, but we believe it in a way that keeps us open and keeps us curious about what God is up to and what the Spirit is doing. So James Marcia, identity development. We have commitment. We have crisis or disequilibrium, curiosity. When we have both of those being low, diffusion. When we have commitment being high and crisis low, foreclosure. When we have a high level of crisis in our life, it can feel very alone when the commitment is down and that is moratorium. And then finally, when curiosity and commitment come together, we can find ourselves in a place of achievement and we can really thrive and operate in a really dynamic way. Now, it's likely that we're all going to float around through all four of these modalities. We are going to be along for the ride in diffusion. We're going to feel overly zealous in foreclosure. We're going to feel alone in moratorium. And we're going to hum with curiosity and commitment in identity achievement. And that is what it means to be human. We float through all of these. And the key to this is just to keep going. The key is to remain open. The key is to explore. The key is to stay in community, process where you are, who you are, what you think, what you believe, so that you can continue to move towards Christ-likeness, continue to move towards who God has designed you to be, so that you can bring your best self to the world, bringing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. 